one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Yo, what's up? Sunday morning. I'm four coffees in, thanks to Ironside Coffee. Like, seriously, four. I've got two bags of this to get through in the next three weeks. The stuff is legit. It's smooth, it's dark, and it's intelligent. What? It's very much like me. Anyway, today is brought to you by main sponsors, Aussie Strength and Ironside Coffee. Um, Aussie Strength are awesome. Wait till you see what I'm going to do to my garage, my new gym. I'll post all of the videos and the photos on Instagram for you to see. I'm here today, very early Sunday morning, in the We Are Liberty building in Perth, where I have my office space and studio. It's great because it's available 24 hours. I can come in, come out as I please. Not in any really long fixed-term contract, and I've got everything in here and not, not at home, which is great. Also, this week, we're also brought to you by the Work Health and Safety Experts, WHSE. You might remember I had Liam O'Connor on the show earlier last year, who is in the Work Health and Safety Experts himself. What they do is work across a wide range of industries around Australia and New Zealand, Asia, well, worldwide really. They provide a range of services to assist other businesses navigating OHS requirements. Do things like auditing, incident investigations, reporting, uh, tendering, technical writing. Um, they love all that stuff. And they also provide labour hire and short and long term contracts. If you were to go to their website, www.whseexperts, so the E is the E in experts.com, so www.whseexperts.com, and, uh, and reach out to them. They're going to give listeners to the podcast 10% off on any services or products. Now, leadership, Bo Robinson, Wallaby. We talk all about leadership and resilience today. Um, we go on about profound leadership. And he, in particular, talks about Ewan McKenzie and how great a leader he was. We talk about setting yourself up for the future. Some of the themes from today's podcast, being the hardest worker in the room, you've heard me say that before, secret training when no one is watching, Jack PT, I like to call that. We talk about honesty and accountability and a little bit about special forces testing. We talk about no-fail missions. We touch on... Uh, and do a little bit of analysis on Jocko Willick's extreme ownership and how I don't particularly believe that that's 100% accurate. You can't own absolutely everything. It's, I know a lot of people are going, what? No, Bram, you've got to agree with everything he says. Um, yeah, whatever. And the best traits of good leadership. We talk also about cultural communication. It's a great episode. Bo is such a, such a, a warm and you know easy-to-talk-to country guy who's had some profound life experiences, such as um, his brother tragically uh, being killed in London when he was on his way to visit him, and it's a, it's a quite a touching story. But I think you'll also agree that what Bo really brings to the party is a no-bullshit, you know, if you're a leader, you've got to be honest, you've got to be accountable, and you've just got to be accessible. And he, and he really exemplifies that himself, I think. Um, anyway, sit back, relax, or go for a run and uh, find your cadence. Whatever it is that you do when you're listening to the Warrior You podcast, just go and do that and uh, settle in and listen. On with the show. Righto. Bo Robinson, welcome to the Warrior You podcast, mate. Excited to be on here, Bram. I'm pretty excited to be talking to a uh, an international, another international rugby player, especially with your background and also with what you're working on at the moment in the in the um coaching space and certainly resilience obviously well and truly in in sort of my area of expertise which is going to be great to have a chat to you about all that stuff and yeah i, I really wanted to just start by you know sort of drawing the parallels between and, I've, and i did this as well with another guest with regards to warfare and 
and sport and how and how similar they are and yet how different they are but in lots of ways the leadership of in a team environment especially in a high performing team like you've played in at that national level is quite similar to that high performing military team yeah i would imagine imagine so i mean obviously um my exposure to the military and, and special forces is probably not as going to be significant as what maybe your exposure to the sporting teams are because um, mm. the sporting teams are a little more inclined or that, you know, it's a necessity to have what's going on with, within their team sort of out in the public to, to generate a bit of media. And, and it, whereas obviously it's quite secretive, but I do have a few mates um, that are, been in special forces uh, or are in special forces and I love talking about the leadership stuff and, and some of the similarities there um, which I'm quite passionate about yeah about you know the role and the importance uh, and the influence that a leadership has on the culture and in turn the results I suppose of teams let's let's get back to that in a minute because I, I, I want to unpack the people that have impacted you in a leadership way um and i know that from a resilient standpoint we'll, we'll talk about your brother as well if that's okay but um yep. but before we get on to to that um how about just for the people who are listening maybe just give them a quick down and dirty 30 seconds on who bo robinson is yeah too easy so i was born in uh, alice springs but actually grew up on some of australia's biggest cattle stations a, a good way from alice springs up on the Barkley Tablelands, um, Brunette Downs and Avon Downs, and we're up there for six or seven years before moving back to Dubbo. So my old man's from um, a place called Wenaring, which is about two hours west of Burke, so the back of Burke, and uh, moved down to Dubbo after his father passed away, probably a bit close to family and his mother. Um, and from there, I was mad on the horse riding, and then um, that was sort of my first exposure to team sports, and absolutely loved it. And as soon as I got in the team sports, pretty much, you know, within a year or two, gave away the horse riding. And uh, then I started playing rugby when I was, so I was soccer, soccer and cricket, mad on that, and made a few rep teams. And then um, got into the rugby when I was about uh, under 15, 14, I think it was. And uh, then in my last two years, I went away to boarding school to Bathurst. I had two years there and then was fortunate enough to get an offer um, from the Bulldogs Rugby League in the under-20s. So the week after finishing the exams, I went down down there, joined the Bulldogs, had a year in the Bulldogs, um, and then went back and joined the Waratahs Academy. So I, had, I signed a two-year deal at the Waratahs Academy. only had one year there and then actually got um, upgraded to a three-year professional contract there. So I had sure. uh, made my debut the following year and I was 20. Played a few games in the first year. 2008, which was the second year, I went on to play um, in Super Rugby um, Grand Final. Um, the next year, new coach came in and I, I didn't have any luck there. Didn't get any runs, so didn't add to my um, my caps there. And uh, at the end of 2009, GFC too um, came in. That had an impact on on the um, the roster and what they were doing there. And couldn't find anything else in the world, unfortunately. So I ended up, uh, got pretty desperate and I went to a third division club in Italy. Yeah. And whilst over there, my uh, my brother who was coming over to see me passed away in London. Um, so from there, I came back to Dubbo for the funeral and all that stuff. Went and did some labouring out at Burke and then moved to moved back to Sydney and joined my old um, amateur rugby club there, the Warringah Rats where I was also captain um, and was working as a Garbo rubbish collector there for a year and went back to uni full-time and was hoping something had come up. And there was a new team coming in, the Melbourne Rebels. I don't know how much rugby you follow, but the Melbourne Rebels coming in. and um, Enough to know that Sterling Mortlock was the captain. Yeah, yeah, big Sterling. Um, And then... So, yeah, Melbourne came in, didn't get offered a contract there. So then I reached out to the coach who was at the Waratahs when I was there for my first two years, who was now up at Queensland, and said, uh, you know, said, can I come up there for an opportunity? Um, and he said, yeah, right, uh, but, but, but we're not going to pay you. So I went up there and I was training with them Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday morning. And then 
um, working at a bottle shop or bottle shop and pub Wednesday, Friday night, and all day Saturday and Saturday night. And then uh, they, there was a, an agreement between all the rugby provinces in Australia and the Players Association that if you played five games, you got an automatic contract. So that's what I, that was a sort of you know a goal of mine. So I got that um, five games and actually got concussion in that game. And uh, was coming to the realization again for the second time that my brother had passed away. And uh, in that year, we had a pretty good year and actually went on to win the Super Rugby title. So that was my first year up at the Reds, which was 2011. Cool. Um, and then stayed up there for 2013, 14, 15. Then I found myself in a short term contract in Sydney. Then I found myself out in Dubbo for a couple of months, just training, hoping something would come up. Um, then I got an offer to go to England, went over there, got injured, um, finished out that season, went came back to Australia for a couple of weeks for holiday and then went and lived in Poland for two and a half months. My wife's Polish. So we were living over there and I went and had my 30th in Prague and as we were crossing the border back over to um, Poland, got a few messages off the manager saying, give me a call. We've got a couple of offers on the table, a couple of clubs interested in you and... Um, had a decent club chasing me and uh, they didn't have a concrete offer. So I had to take the other one, um, which was second division team over there. So I actually flew over there. My wife and I flew over from Poland, England, but she was at this time heavily pregnant. So we're living in a two bedroom apartment. I've got a little boy who was one year old at that stage and she's pregnant. I think she's about six weeks off, maybe only four giving birth. Um, to our little girl. So she actually had to go back to Poland because it was a planned cesarean. So I went and lived in England and then flew back Bloody to see her to have a cesarean. Yeah. Flew back to England after that, after that weekend, and then flew back six weeks later to pick up the family and move over to England. Mate. And then ended up, yeah, on the weekend that we went to pick her up, uh, had a career ending injury, the knee. And then so oh. we finished, uh, finished up there in, so that was. Um, the knee happened in November 2016, contract finished in May 2017. So then we stuck around in the UK for a little bit, yeah. traveled for three months, went and had Christmas in Poland um, with uh, the in-laws and then flew back on the 1st of January 2018 to Dubbo and here I am based in Dubbo. Wow. So that's it. And a quick one. I tried to go through that as quick as possible. Mate, that was a... That was a career and a life up up to and including 30s that just had highs and lows scattered all the way through it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it was a hell of a roller coaster journey. Yeah. Uh, mm. I'd say there's a lot of stuff for you to draw on there for um, not just leadership but resilience. Yeah, there is a bit. Like it was – there's some pretty, pretty fucking tough times there, definitely. But, yeah. you know, you skirted over representing Australia as a Wallaby. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I did. Which is which um, is incredible, mate. Like, just can you imagine all the people out there listening to this right now that probably play club rugby and have aspirations? So don't do not do us a disservice. Give us a quick rundown of how awesome that was. Well, it's an interesting one. So so we, we Saturday, uh, we, the Queensland Reds, um, we win the grand final, unbelievable. Like, yeah. fuck, wow. Um, that night, given, you know, tapped on the shoulder, said, you're going to be in the, the Wallabies squad. Um, and, you know, we, there's going to be a live press conference the, uh, on the Sunday morning. So, like, I don't, I think I went to that press conference. I don't think I'd been asleep. Like, I was so drunk and uh, might have dropped a few F bombs on live TV too. Um, and then so we, we had a big party Sunday. We had ticket tape parade uh, ticket tape parade on Monday. Wow. Monday Arvo, we flew down. So like I was on the bus and actually like to the airport and like spewed near but like I was so busted. We were playing, so I got the called up, yep, we were in the twenty three for the game and I was playing against um Samoa uh Sunday afternoon and we went out to, was it Stadium Australia or whatever it's called, and, and we lost. So, like, it was, it was, it was, you've gone from such a high to such a low. Again, like, <laughs> you, you should be so proud of the recognition, mm. uh, the achievement, but, you know, fuck, you, you, 
you've let everyone down and you're so disappointed. Mm. There's not a great deal to, well, there's nothing, actually nothing to be happy about apart from the fact that you have you know, achieved playing for your country. So mm. there's not actually a heap of fond memories yeah. around that actual, but now that it's over, it's, you know, I'm quite proud of the fact that I did achieve that. The cap, obviously not proud of the game or the way I played. Mm. But again, especially where I'd come from in the last, you know, the 24, 24 months sort of before mm. that, yeah, proud of that. But it's something now in you've got the time that, you know, you're removed from it that you, yeah. you sort of do talk about it a bit more. Yeah. I often talk about joining the, the Australian Defence Force or, you know, the police or whoever with a view to what you're going to do when you get out um, and not just joining blindly and thinking that's going to be you for the rest of your life. Was that something that you thought of as well when you when you started playing rugby? 100%. It was drilled in us. It was drilled in all of us. But I, I think, uh, you know, I come from a working-class family where um, it was just drilled in you go and get an apprenticeship or go and get a university degree. Mm. Like my old man and, and mum were just, do that, do that. So it's it's a great point. I often say that to to footballers or professional athletes, like the two questions you should be able to answer is: if I had a careering injury tomorrow, what would I do? Mm. And if I had a or and what do I want to do when I finish mm. my career? What am I actually aiming to achieve? So, um, you know, I did a bachelor of business. So that took me. I was studying for 12 years. I actually started as a mm. landscape gardener and then broke my leg when I was at the Bulldogs. And I thought, you know, here I am, you know, on the wheelbarrow, just lugging mud. Um, this is not what is good for me if I want to be a professional player. Like, I'm busted by the time I go mm. to the gym. And, like, it was intense at the Bulldogs. So mm. I, I said, shit, I've got to go and study and, and went and did that. Actually started, started PE teaching and then transitioned or transferred to, to um, Bachelor of Business. Mm. And even then, but it was interesting. You know, I finished my, um, my university degree and my old man says, you know, you've got nothing. You, you you haven't even got an apprenticeship. I was like, "Fuck, are you serious?" Like, oh, you've just been hounding me for the last ten years about how I've got to study. I've got to study. I yeah. finally do that. But I suppose that's what he wanted me yeah. to do. He wanted me to go and get this apprenticeship. Um, that's always what he believed. You know, a, a man should do. I suppose, or or something in agriculture too. Are you are um, you the first Robinson in your family with a degree? No, some of the cousins yeah. have got those and whatnot. Yeah, mm. but mum and dad, they both went um, up to the territory when they were 18, first year of school. Yeah, we, we had, I look back over the Connolly family and I think my sister was the first one with a degree followed by my, myself and then married a girl with a degree and a master's and everything else. But yeah, it's one of those things where I, I think sometimes it's about opportunity, isn't it? You know, as much as anything. Yeah, it, I, I was fortunate enough. Like the Rugby Union Players Association had an agreement there uh, with the ARU or whoever it was, that, mm. um, and with the players that if you, when I first signed the contract, if you passed a you know a university subject, they would actually reimburse you yeah, for right. that. Right. So I must have wrecked, and it wasn't just university. I was so, like, I got a truck license, I got a mm. firearm license, I went and did property courses, yeah. everything that these guys pay for. So I, I racked up. I think the quota, you know, the, what you could max out was about fifty grand. And I, I reckon I would have been close to hit. So that, you just take eh? advantage of it, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, why would I not do that? Yeah. Sort of thing? So it was tough. Um, you know, during that time, I'd lived in England, yeah, Poland, New Zealand, Italy, and then travelled. Uh, so, was, you know, my heart bleeds for you. Glamorous. Well, no, 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 yeah, no, no, yeah, no, it's simply, but you know, like when you're sitting there and the boys are all going out to, yeah, um, oh, I know what's the island over in uh, the Cape Town where Nelson Mandela was, and mm. you're like, oh, shit, I can't do that because I've got to study. Got to study yeah, I was, a, I was the same, Bo. I was like, you know, I was in Afghanistan, it was bullets by day and books by night, you know, it was, I was mixing yeah. these two different lives over the best part of a decade as well to get a degree just because I knew I needed something afterwards. So um, I know how hard you would have 
you know, studied and I know the sacrifices you made, mate. So kudos to you. But if young young kids are listening to this and they're in sport and thinking that they're going to be the next big thing, there's a lot of people out there that think they're going to be the next big thing that then end up with no degree, no, you know, nothing after sport or nothing after the military. Um, so here's two here's two old guys saying, <laughs> you know, listen listen to your bloody dads for Christ's sake. You know, go and do something and and have a plan. I think there's a bit of humility about that too, yeah, you know, sitting sure. there and, um, mm. um, you know, it might not work. I know you sort of got to burn the boats a bit, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting one. I said to my kids today, actually, um, we were talking about, you know, just like passing on some dad stuff and we were talking about, you know, my 20s to 30s and I said the thing that I regret is probably, you know, spending most Thursday, Friday nights going out drinking with mates where I could have been doing other things like building businesses or, or you know, things where I had a passion in, writing books back then even, you know, um, mm-hmm. wasted really a decade when I think about it. I mean, it's all it's all swings and roundabouts, I'm sure, but it's still one of those things that it would have been a better use of my time. It's easy to say that. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? Like mm. that... You still want, we don't want to stop people from um, living their youth either yeah. and enjoying that, but it's mm. yeah, it's that's experience, life experience, and hindsight too. Who's been the most impactful leader of your life, and why? Um, it's an interesting one. I don't know if my old man would be classified as a leader, but he's definitely a, a been a role model, obviously. Mm. I think, you know, irrespective of – well, no, I was going to say every father is for their sons, but that's that's not true. But, um, you know, obviously, especially when you're young, and I see that with my son now, they just admire and want to do everything that you do. Yeah. Um, and then you you and Mackenzie definitely. So the rugby coach, you know, like all those coached by him for five years and um that's probably the main reason why I'm so passionate about leadership is um you know, it has such a profound impact on on, yeah. on people's lives. You know, he, he gave me that opportunity first of all at the Waratahs, I suppose, but then at the Reds when he definitely didn't have to. Um and then he he built something that allowed me to have lifelong memories. Mm. Now, like everyone that was there at the Reds 2011, like irrespective of what happens in their life, that will never be taken away from them. And that, yeah. you know, I, I played ten years as a professional, and that was I one one other title, but that was the main one sort of thing during the professional era. And it was unbelievable to be able to have that, and even the stuff that comes with that. You know, the caps, the the glasses, the cups. So we got a ring as well. When you, witness, awesome. when you witness good leadership, it's actually quite profound, I think, when you actually witness it. Sometimes we work for leaders or even managers who are good, but it's just what it is. But then every now and again you see something that's just that extra bit of you know, class that becomes quite profound. You know, what would you say with you and Mackenzie? Like what, what, what were sort of some of the characteristics that he had or the traits that he had that you felt were you know, really profound in, in and impactful on you? Um, his ability to uh, manage people and, and groups um, and different personalities, you know, a lot of some big personalities up there at the Reds and I was up there, um, but also humility. I mean, this guy is not an extrovert by any means either. He was very much an introvert. So, and I think... I admire that the fact that someone is an introvert but can still um, go and connect with different personalities and and get the most out of them. Yeah, um, he was very honest, so you knew exactly where you. So that's what I liked about him. Anyway. It's like I just honesty, bang. Listen, you're not in the team. This is why. You know, straight up, um, yeah. the, that honesty and integrity, and was willing to make the tough decisions. They were probably the three biggest. So the honesty, integrity, sort of one thing there, um, and the ability to man manage and the humility to go. Listen, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I don't have to. I'm surrounded by very, very good people. Yeah. Um, yeah, they can do the job. Yeah. And, and empowered that enabled him to empower those around him too, including the players. Yeah. Would you say that um, his personality and yours really sort of went well together 
Uh, I, I think more more than anything, just that honesty. Mm. You know, it was just straight up um, the respect. Like, you know, don't I don't beat around the bush, and mm. I'd tell it how it was, and he would do the same to me. Yeah. And it was just you know, all cards were on the table. And I think, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson said it's more more important to be respected than liked, and you can always respect someone who's you might not agree with what they're saying, but mm. if you know it and they say it to your face, even if they're sort of having a bit of your crack at you, but it might be honest, constructive feedback, then again, you you, you know what they're about. There's no hidden agendas there. Yeah, what I'm what I'm hearing in, in what you're saying about him is that it sounds like he's, especially with the fact that there was all those big personalities up there in the Reds, it sounds like he had either a natural understanding of situational leadership, of being able to sort of morph and change for each individual person, or he'd learnt that somewhere along the way. And for me, the the best leaders that I've ever seen have not only understood situational leadership, but they've then gone and even learnt it, you know, and and self-actualised to the point where they understand why they're doing it and how they're doing it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I really like what you point out there. So, um, self awareness, mm. like, okay, how do I actually get the most out of this person? Mm. What do I, how do how do I tap into them? What do they want? And how what how do I have to adjust? So, I use the term fairly often, like the most adaptable leader wins. Like, if you can get the most out of each different person, and you know, communicate with them or whatever it is, get them find out what motivates them and. Um, Ben Daly, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, said the same wow. thing. He said when he first got there, like Yon McKenzie really went out of his way to understand what it was, what motivated each person. Yeah. Which all, and that was the year before I got there sort of yeah. thing. And, you know, they'd finished in the bottom three six years in a row. Yeah. And then fifth and then first. So that was interesting in asking him how he transformed the Reds. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, that's uh, the, the pop culture version of that is Simon Sinek saying, um, you know, a, a leader is able to get other people to do what they want them to do because they want to do it. Um, I think that the extended version of that is understanding situational leadership. Mm. For sure. Yep, spot on. Yeah. Have you held any... any well, you, you were the captain of a few teams. Yeah, just the club teams, yeah. mate. Like, it was... Um, I was captain of the Warringah Rats there um, for a year or two, mm. where we weren't doing real well. Yeah, um, and it was it was tough, like yeah. because it was while for a few few guys there, they were probably focused on you know just playing and and winning and having fun. For me, it was fuck. I need this to as a leverage to get back into the profession. Right. Yeah. Era. So there was a lot of pressure on myself yeah. personally and the team to perform like I'd not like, you know, the teams that are performing the best, mm. that's when that people a lot of people don't sit there and watch too much until the top four teams are finally in the semifinals. Yeah. So if you can you can you can you can almost win a contract or earn a contract if you have a good game in a grand final. Wow. Yeah, so you know, I mean, I know you you know Ian Pryor. Um, he's he's a good yep. friend of mine. He's a he's a great leader in his own right, I believe. Um, and he's done that through you know, obviously natural ability, but he's spent a lot of time studying leaders. Um, that it seems to me that your experience with the Warringah Rats, you know, that there'd be things there that you'd be able to share with someone like Ian, you know, because. Obviously, the competition he's in now is a little bit different. But where you are, mm. or where you were, especially then, you came into that with a with a solid background, a reputation, and now you're surrounded by club rugby guys who are like there for shits and giggles. And you're like, no, this is high performing, and so you're trying to create a high performing team. Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, you you again, you're trying to focus on the team, but also you are. You're being selfish, like you're selfish, taking a bit more to heart when the team isn't performing. Mm. And I'm pretty passionate and um, leader. Well, no, not leader, but passionate person sort of thing. And I, I definitely vented my frustration a few times there because, you know, th- that wasn't a three or four year plan for me. Mm. 
I couldn't afford to be. No. So I didn't have much patience. I couldn't afford it. So when we're losing against teams that we shouldn't be, like I would just flip it out of frustration. So I'd learn a lot from there um, about that, especially looking back, reflecting. Yeah. So it was really interesting before actually when you said you, know, you, you really appreciate a good leader. I feel as though rugby players, from my observations and experience, don't appreciate a good leader and the role that they have as a coach or a captain yeah. all of the time until, um, you know, I think at the Reds there, people just thought that when you and Mackenzie left, that it just it, it wouldn't matter, mm. that it just it sort itself out. Mm. And then now they get to the end of their career and they've been to a few other places and they haven't reached the heights both in the teams that they're a part of, but also individually yeah. because when the team's winning, everyone, like, you know, you get better offers from different clubs, you get selected for the national team, and when the team's not going good, then yeah. they don't come looking at you. Yeah. Same players probably could be potentially better players, but because they're not performing as a team, as a collective, so therefore they're not showcasing yeah. their, their talents as much. And now they've gone away and towards the end of their career, they're like, wow, yeah, I probably took that a little bit for granted. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it does. I got sucked into believing my own hype at one stage where I I became platoon commander of this this team that from the outside looked like they were doing okay. And then I went in there and suddenly they they felt to me like, geez, these are really high-performing and it's my leadership that's made it that way. And then when I left, they were still high-performing and I'm like, oh, hang on. It wasn't. It wasn't me after all, you know. And and it's such an interesting part of the leadership journey to go. Oh well, I've created something really great, and it's still really great even when I'm not there. And it's the one supporting the leader. It's not necessarily the leader supporting it. Yeah, that's that's, that's a, a kick in the ass. Great for me. point. Mm. Like, but is that? That's I. I admire those leaders who go into an organisation or club or whatever it may be mm. and they set it up the culture so that even when they step out and the next person who is mm. you know, still a good leader, because you can still get someone else coming in who is in a leadership role who's not a good leader who can absolutely fuck everything that's been done anyway, yeah. like all the good work that's been done, and they can do it quite quickly. But if you've set it up so it's not relying on you, you create that culture where you know they're all striving, all working hard for each other, then the next leader can come in and possibly take that to the next level. Anyway. Yeah, I want to say that when George Gregan left the Wallabies, you know, it felt like there was a moment, there was a while there, there was a long while there where it sort of started to implode a little bit, and I, I sort of wonder now, looking back at it from my understanding of leadership, if perhaps. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss he'd been a little bit selfish in making it it was more about George than it was about the Wallabies perhaps he's a lovely bloke I've met him before but I do wonder as well if he was bigger than the sum of the parts and and how does a leader defend against that create a team where they're not you know they're not the main gig in town maybe you don't even agree with that but if you don't agree with it just call it out I don't know about the George Gregan thing because I find it's so like I hate speculating on stuff like you until you're not until you've been on the inside. Yeah, like it's, and know, he was a superstar, you know. He's, oh yeah, but that was a superstar. You're yeah. right too. Like there was some big names. Yeah, there. yeah. Can you imagine um, it? Oh. Yeah, like so. But I know what you mean. Like, how, mm. how do you ensure that it's that it, it can go on? And one of the best books for people that do love reading about that is um that Bill Walsh. The score takes care of itself. So the bloke who started got the San Francisco 49ers went from last to first mm. within three seasons. But he set it up so that, you know, they still went on even after he left. He won another two titles and yeah. one more of them being the year or the second year after he left. So he just set it up and created that culture where I suppose you've got to ask, you're asking then, 
you're putting the emphasis on, say, the players or those people with the below leaders to drive it internally. Yeah. So what, you know, when talking to Ben Daly about why did the Reds drop off, because we went away from having honesty and accountability wow. with each other. So if you can create that environment, where irrespective of you're not there, you know, say a coach steps out from the rugby team and then the leadership group is still honest and accountable with each other, then it's not as reliant on you. Right. And I think that's what the All Blacks do really well is that, you know, that was driven. Steve Hansen and, and his coaching staff and Graham Henry created that environment <coughs> initially and got the ball rolling. So this is, this, is how, this is what we expect from you. This is how you're going to do it. Then after that, it probably went a bit more away where it was, you know, Dan Carter, Richie McCaw and Kieran Reid and uh, Conrad Smith, you know, some big names there, but they were probably calling each other out and saying, listen, that's not good enough. Yeah. We're, we're better than that. Yeah. We can do better. Yeah, no, I, I saw that in myself with a, with, a, um, with a sniper platoon that I was in charge of where the accountability was, you know, you have certain expectations of those people and they have to meet those standards. And some of that work has to be done in their own time. And that's the honesty is working on the stuff in their own time to then be accountable for it when it matters. Mm, mm. So if you, like, you know, for those that are listening, if you think that you're going to get ahead of the rest of the pack and you're not going to work more than the rest of the pack, yeah. you're fucking kidding yourself. Agreed. Agreed 100%, mate. I, you know, there was a thing for years, for a decade, um, when we first started the commando capability where it was very strange because what would happen is guys would come in in the morning for PT and and the PT would be, so the physical training would be between 7 and 8.30, then you'd get showered and changed and have breakfast and then you'd start your training day. But the thing was, guys were doing PT on the weekends after 5 o'clock at night, you know, on their leave. And the, we used to call it Jack PT. Like you didn't tell anyone it was Jack because you were going Jack on your mates. You weren't telling anyone you were doing it. And then the next thing you know, yeah, well, there was one Christmas I remember where we all came back together and you look around and every dude is jacked. Everyone's been in the gym for three sessions a day for eight weeks, you know, and all natural, I might add. Well, mostly, mostly, you know, and then they're out there smashing each other in these sessions and you just know that not only are they honest about it, they spent their whole leave training for it because they were in their 20s and now everyone was accountable for meeting that standard. Oh, I love it, mate. Honesty and accountability. And you, you're 100% right. If you're not doing the work when no one's watching, then you're not going to be a fucking champion. Mm. And that's anything not just in sport, create. right? That's not just in sport. No, shit, no. That's fucking anything. Fuck, you and I here on Sunday. You and I here on Sunday afternoon. It's, what time is it? It's 5.39 p.m. for me. I'm in the office and you're at home in, in Dubbo, is it? Yep. At yep. eight thirty nine, doing a podcast. Yep. Because and we because we love it. Yeah, I've been working all over. I've mm. got a fucking fair bit on at the moment. You know, I've had to do that Sunday Arvo. Yeah. Drop the kids off to mum and dad. Unfortunately, yeah. said I've got to punch you out a bit more. But what are you, know, you working on? Oh, sorry. Can, go, go on, mate. Go. Finish it off. You can you can create again if you focus on your leaders. Within the playing group. So that mightn't have been the case at the Reds, mm. say, in 2007, 8, 9, whatever, right. where they would sit there and do the extras. But by the time and you get the 2010 and 11, they're sitting there doing the extras after training, before training, you're all getting in early. Mm. So you can create that culture. And I know talking to other players who have been part of other teams that have gone on to win the Super Rugby, they're saying the same thing. They go, you know, we're just sitting out there doing that where the leaders had created, they started doing the extras and then you can either ask someone and get them involved or you can sort of tell them or then the other people just watching, observing, go, well, they're doing it, so I'm going to do it. And I'm actually going to write an article about one of the captains at the Harlequins over there, Chris Robshaw, Mm. who was there when I was there. You know, captain of the England, like, probably the best example I've seen of just leading through your actions. Like, this bloke just Mm. did extras upon extras upon extras and you know you felt bad if you weren't doing yeah. it well he wouldn't put I, you know i didn't observe and i was out there briefly but i didn't observe him putting a word on him but you just felt fuck this bloke just wants it and you know he went on to achieve some pretty awesome things it's um, um it's the old saying show don't tell mm, it works yeah. for so much mm. yeah 
you guys are a bit lucky about them, the rugby, because um, so I've got a mate in the commandos there, and you know, I've talked to him and went out and talked to his trainers out there at the commandos, and awesome. But I was like, when you guys like, you know, when you do your gym, and he's like, hey, the boys just come in and do it whenever. And I was like, are you serious? Mm. He's like, yeah, why? And I was like, mate, in the super rugby teams, like professional, like you have to allocate teams to make sure they're doing it. Like, blokes just roll in, and some of them, you know, might only do 20 minutes because they're just. And they don't last long generally, those guys at the top. Got, some of them have got huge potential, but I've seen guys that had so much potential and that's just how they treat the gym yeah. and other aspects of training and they never reach their potential. But, you know, it's there with the SF stuff with the commandos, like the ownership was on, listen, you go and do it. We don't really give a fuck if you don't mm. go and do it. It's up to you. And that's a big difference, whereas you know, you, the shit that you have to go through to even get in there, mm. like all that testing will just, you've got to be so internally driven and motivated mm. that by the time you actually get there, everyone's hungry. Hard work. Which is not the Hard case. work beats talent every day of the week. Mm. Yeah, but that, that you, 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 don't, you have to nurture that a lot more yeah. in professional sports because mm. they don't have to go through that rigorous training just to get there. Like, to even get in the commandos, like, what, you know, or... Well, the SAS, mm. what, what do you have to go through? What is that week of hell or whatever? Like everything. You've got to go through like, everything. Yeah, but the, the thing, I guess the difference is you're talking about the national capability of last resort. Like there is no, yep. there is no second, you know, second line. Yeah. So the way, yeah, the definitely. way, the way they look at it is if they're being called out operationally, there's no one coming in after them. That's any better. It's like playing, it's like playing world cup, but having you have to win it for the nation every single time you get called up, yeah. you know. But especially selected, specially trained rugby's not that dissimilar. But you know, I won't I won't take away from the special operations community. You know, they are a very special bunch of people. To be fair, um, as are as are the infantry battalions. In my mind, you know, they've all got they all they all go there and they do this job. They sign up for a reason and they and they work bloody hard to to win their missions. Um, so from talking about leadership and in particular you know good leadership honesty accountability i love it i think jocko willick talks about extreme ownership which i'm sort of on the fence about a little bit um people will be going what hearing that but um yeah that the extreme everything is your fault sort of thing yeah i, I get the concept it's easy to say yeah. um you know it's easy to say when you know, you'd rather come across someone who was too far like that than the opposite wouldn't you fuck yeah. me yeah yeah that's true that is true. Oh, yeah. How many times you go, like, you, you, Not listen, my fault. Mate, you're putting too much pressure on yourself as opposed to, mate, are you going to take a little bit of ownership for this? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. You're the leader, you drive on the bus. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day. Yeah. You know, you, especially those that are in charge of hiring and firing. Like, yeah. Oh, my team's here. Oh, mate, you employ them and yeah. you can fire them. What do you think are the best traits of a, of a, of a leader? And in particular, what you've seen working now with the corporate world, what what are the traits that are sort of transferable from elite sport to the corporate world? Um, so, the, like, uh, are are they are they different? Like, I think they're they're all beneficial, irrespective of what you're doing. Like leadership fundamentally is the same thing: trying to get the most out of individuals to achieve a common goal. Mm. Um, the ones that, like, when I'm interviewing and asking people that seem to keep popping up is, and this is, you know, that they have a vision. They're sort of clear on what they stand for. Mm. Um, they're passionate. Like, they work bloody hard. Like, we're talking about that, like, mm. you know, on the Sundays. Like, they are doing it. They just work ethic. live, eat, sleep, everything. They just love it. Um, good communicators. Mm. Um, you know, your you ability to communicate and then that emotional intelligence side. So yeah. uh, I think when, when people say emotional intelligence, they say, I think it's empathy. Mm. But um, no. it's, you know, I asked James Hall because he said emotional intelligence for more of his company. I said, well, what does that mean to you? And he goes, it's, you know, it's knowing when to step in and sort things out, knowing when to just step back and let the boys sort of out, knowing when to, you know, crack the whip when you have to, knowing when to put your arm around them. It's like... That's brilliant. Um, I think emotional intelligence means something different to most to most people. 
And as long yeah. as, yeah, I do. I mean, I know a few guys yeah. who who are completely void of any emotions, let alone emotional intelligence, and yet because they understand it exists, makes them a better person. So I think it's one of those things, as long as you understand that there's this facet of emotional intelligence, as long as you understand that, then you can come at it from your unique perspective as a leader. So for me, like I'm, I'm highly attuned to other people's feelings and emotions. And, and because of that, I'm able to predict the way they're going to behave prior to me telling them something, right? So for me, that, that's, yep. that's a good thing. For some people, they're not aware of that at all, but they're able to go, okay, that person's now upset. I'll give them some space, you know, or, or whatever. Yeah. So we all come at it from a different perspective. It's a pretty hack way of looking at it, I guess. I'm not a psychologist, but yeah. No, but again, like I think you touched on a few things there that, oh, shit, that person reacted like that at that time. Um, mm. Maybe I could approach that a different way next time. Sometimes you need them to yeah, you need them to react the way mm. where they're not happy because mm. you're sending a clear message. Mm. You know, like, yeah, they're getting fired up and they're angry and they're just good. So you understand that I'm not happy with what's and, and how much it means to me. That, so I've delivered that on purpose. Is that missing? Is that yeah. missing in leadership now where people are able to stand in front of it like a man can stand in front of a, um, another man or, in, or in fact, a man can stand in front of a woman or vice versa and say, hey, look, you screwed up. This is a yeah, this is a definitely. smackdown. It's um yeah it's mm. it's I think that again comes down to your culture and your your emotional intelligence, understanding what different individuals how they're going to best react. Like you know you wouldn't sit there and say at halftime teams going shit. You might not yell out, especially at say an Islander boy who's a lot more reserved and, and timid. Like you might not call them out in front, in front of, of everyone. You might have to go and listen. You have to set this up. But if you said that to me. You know, that's shit. You're better than that. You know, yeah. I need you to do this, mm. and yelled it at me in front of everyone. Yes, sweet. You know, that's what I need. Different too, coming from that um, combative, yeah, alpha male environment too. Yeah, you know, like there's not a great deal of need for that in the corporate world necessarily yeah. either. Where you start losing shit, like sports is totally different. Yeah, um, so is combat. I, combat is different in that way. Sometimes it's a requirement to be in their face and like. Because it's time sensitive, you know, oh, the lot, lives are on the line, and and you need to say, hey, you screwed this up, mate, or or you know, I really need you to lift right now, or just get in that. <laughs> they're probably going to know what I'm talking about. Get in, just get in that room. That's what I've told you to do. Just get in there and get it done. Uh, and, and you know, you raised a point then, which is sensitive around the um, other cultures, and I I, I did really struggle because I'd never met Maoris before, and you got these big, robust, angry. You know, guys, but they are completely different emotionally than some people. I don't know if, if that's – I hope that's not racist saying that. But it was certainly my perspective that I had I had no understanding of how to communicate with, with Maoris in particular. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Like, it's not just, like, Maoris. You just use that as an example, but mm. how you mm. would treat – like, and we're talking about generalisation. No, you're right. Indons were in, – Indonesian people were, were – I found difficult as well. Mm. Exactly, you know, mm. like some of those cultures that you work with, um, cross cultural communication. That you yeah. say, yeah, you sit there and you're trying to tell them something, mm. and they just keep telling you yes that they do understand when they have no idea because they don't want to let you down. You're like, yeah, what are you doing? You're killing me. Like yeah. that's not my culture, but and there are little subcultures, even you know, say from those in the country to those in yeah in the affluent um, suburbs. Yeah, we gravitate in, towards uh, people like us rather than try and understand oh, yeah. people who aren't like us. There's generally one person, one or two people that will be the leaders within that group. So if you can get them on board, they'll take care of the rest of the group. Cliffy Parlow was a great example of that mm. at the Waratahs. Like he was mm. the boss. Um, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be always an official leadership role. Some of the other on the boys were, but they all looked up to Cliffy to see what he was doing. Yeah. So if you got Cliffy on board and sold whatever it was that you were trying to do to him, mm. then you knew the rest would follow. Well, it's a great leadership example, and and even not to not to stay on the cultural um, part of it, because what I saw was the micro leaders, just those micro leaders who had influence and sway. If you could identify them early. And bring them on side, 
you know, they will quietly bring on other people who might not necessarily want to go along with your plans. Mm. Mm. There's a group called Urban Meyer, the, I don't know if you follow Jimmy, the American football, college football. He yeah. was Florida Gators, Ohio State, and he had a 10-80-10 rule. So, you know, 10 were right at the top. They were just so driven, everything. And then 80 were sort of the followers, sort of the sheep, and then you had the lower 10% who you'd try mm. and get rid of. He goes, you, you need to focus on the top 10% and try and get them to go and get another 10% mm. up and work away. So too often organisations and leaders try to change everyone. Mm. But there's only about 10 to 20% of the people that are really having an influence on the rest of the group. You've I just love got it. to get them on board. Your, yeah. your best return on in, you know, investment time and energy is with your leaders, not your entire organisation. Yeah. They'll drive the culture. Yeah, and they could be hidden. They could be hidden in amongst that 80% as well, some of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're not, they're not the people who... Um, who talk the loudest? No. They're again, they're again, the one that's the lead. You want the one. You have the people that are influential, mm. but then also you just want often those guys or those people that are just doing what is yeah. wanted and expected of you know the group. Yeah. What um, I'm gonna have a chat about your brother if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you know how he how he died and um. And what impact that had on you as a as a person and a man? Change pace a bit. Yeah, so um, he just arrived in London. Literally flew in London with his best mate mm. there, who uh, who I'm good mates with, um, and went out. And they got separated and, and walked onto um, not a railway track, but anyway, the energy for the railway track or whatever it is in Australia is over overhead. Mm. There is in London, they're sort of like railway tracks. You know, they're running between the railway tracks. So mm. when you walk on that, then you just get electrocuted. And um, they said when that happened, they said it's you know it's a common occurrence, especially with foreigners, and um, also particularly from the Polish, because big Polish um, population over there mm. um, in England, a lot of them, you know, just oblivious that you're not, you can't walk across the railway tracks. Like people go, oh, what was doing it like? How often do yeah. people in Australia just walk across railway tracks? You just you don't know any different. So mm. that happened. So that was, you know, I, I'd, I'd um, I was playing a rugby game on a Sunday afternoon. I said it was third division. I was, I was mm. hating the rugby. It was pissing me off. Mm. Um, and walked in. We just lost again at home and and picked up the phone and there was um, uh, two missed calls. Um, from mum and a message saying, call me. And I, was, I was just like, picked it up, threw the phone in the bag. You know, I don't want to talk to mm. talk to anyone, uh, especially not my dad. I was like, I knew he'd just be bloody, um, you know, what are you doing over there? Why do you keep losing again? And mm. all, putting a bit of pressure on me. Um, yeah, how are you going to get back to being a professional? Mm. And then I was like, shit, just wait, that's really strange that message mum has not said hello or love mm. you, how are you going, no kisses, no hugs, no love mum. And I started thinking about the time. So I um, went, shit, it's like two or three o'clock in the morning back over there. So I picked up the phone and was uh, she was on the phone, hysterical, crying, couldn't couldn't get any words out. I, initially, my thoughts were, fuck, dad's dead. Mm. Um, you know, he, he, he'd he been through some cancer and whatnot, and I just, uh, I don't know why, but that's what that's what came to my um, mm. came to my mind. Mm. And uh, mum, again, couldn't get any words out, so then all of a sudden, I, dad gets on the phone, I was like, oh, shit. And, you know, a lot going through, and yeah. you'd probably see this in action sort of thing, oh, there's just so much going through your head. Right. And, I was like, fuck, dad's on the phone, right? It's mum and dad, mum's mum and dad were in, you know, aged care or maybe even hospital that day. They bumped, jumped in and out of that. Mm. I was like, it, it wasn't that, wasn't them because she wouldn't have been that hysterical. Mm. They were quite early, like they were in their 90s. Mm. Um, and then I was like, well, it wasn't my half sister because that was dad's first marriage. So he would have jumped on the phone. I was like, fuck, you my knew. brother's in trouble. And, he just got on and he sort of said, you know, he's gone. I said, well, what, what do you mean? He goes, oh, bunge or bunge. Bunge Aboriginal 
word and used by the country people and they're sort of just you know trying to settle me down but i knew that you know fuck there's something going on i just wanted to hear it and he said um it's dan oh he's dead and that's how i got that that yeah. you know i was on the yeah. other side of italy uh, other side of the world in italy and so far away from home it was, it was yeah. pretty tough people starting there so had to fly back over to London and identify his body and then mm. wait for everything to go through there, um, which was pretty tough. Then yeah. flew back to Dubbo and, and had the um, funeral and gave his eulogy. And mm. I went out to Burke after that and did some layering with a mate and I was sort of just like, you know, pretty lost. And yeah, I imagine, yeah. Just going, fuck, you know, well, I've mm. just been totally rocked upside down. What? You know what do I what do I actually want in life, and what do I want to be doing? Uh, mm. um, and whilst yeah, then I went right. I want to be a professional rugby player, and uh, I only want to be a professional rugby player in Australia now. Like, don't want any offers overseas. Just don't. Yeah. Not not interested in. It. I, I I want to get back to where I believe I I should be, sort of thing. And then mm. went down to Sydney. So I said I was went down to Sydney and and working as a garbo, and you know. Start early, finish early, and then go and do all the extras that we've talked about. Mm. And then, and so your brother was like that inspiration because he was he was actually you know your best mate as well, wasn't he? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. He was the inspiration. So, mm. and he'd sort of said to me, you know, when we're over there, like when we're talking to him, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to just you know stay out there? Are you going to come back and have a go? Are you going to you know that was mm. sort of a bit of a kick up the ass yeah. from him, like what are you doing? Yeah. It's all well and good that you're over there mm. having a bit of a um, mm. journey and whatnot, a bit mm. of an experience, but fucking don't, don't sit there and muck around with that for too long. Yeah, tough. Yeah. And and that, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm massively impressed by your resilience to be able to bounce back from that. And it's not just mental toughness. It's It truly is, you know, resilience to be able to have a massive thing like that happen and then to pick yourself up and then have the the career since then and, and the things that you've done since. So well done, mate. Uh, cheers. It's, a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Like I found there's even moving down to Sydney was tough for me. Like I would sit there and a lot of Sunday nights cry myself to sleep because mm. I was just missing home. And it's something that you see a lot with the country boys moving, you know, having to mm. move to the big smoke and whatnot and, mm just pack up and leave everything that they know and um especially the aboriginal boys they mm. seem to do it tougher than just you know especially those aboriginal boys from the country mm. moving and and having to go join this and so common to see you know guys go down there for a week or two and back home yeah. just can't handle it um and i admire i think the afl guys have got the toughest like they literally uh, at least i had a choice to go down the sitting and decide like with that draft, like you can be from mm. Perth or country, yeah, Western Australia, getting sent to the GW, GWS Giants, mm. like at the age of eighteen, Jeez. you had no, you got no say in it, catcher, yeah. get over there. And I think the, I think the Aboriginal, you know, kids, they're so, they're so spiritually linked to that land. Yeah, the Dumbo is a big Aboriginal population, um, and all know, know each other. They're, they're, they're quite. Tight knit, mm. um, yeah. They do a lot of stuff together, sort of thing, mm. which is pretty cool. But mm. so that's what I mean. Like they they're moving out of that, and I went to boarding school. You know, like mm. I had lots of good mates there that are pretty tight. With I think boarding school is like takes it to a, another level. Yeah. And um, you know, those guys doing that, they said they're leaving their entire network. Everything mm. they know, sort of. It's just pretty tough, eh? Yeah. Who is the hardest um, opposition rugby player you've ever played against? Um, probably, oh, Jerry Collins was pretty tough. He was like concrete. Um, Backy's both, it was a, a bully. <laughs> he, he, he was pretty tough, bloody, I don't know how tall he was, but Jesus, a big human and <laughs> yeah, you flat out knocking him out with anything, to be honest. Um. There was a fair, there was a, there was a couple like yeah proper tough ones. Mm. That Don was pretty tough. Dwayne Vermeulen was still getting around. Um, 
but yeah, that, that probably those guys. South Africans are always generally pretty physically tough too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the African breed. Yeah, and w- and your favoured position because I know that you were pretty useful could play a, play a lot of positions. Oh, not he, but I don't know. Yeah, um, open on. side breakaway, so yeah. on the side of the scrum. Yeah, yeah. Too short for many other positions, unfortunately. So flanker. Shotgun. Yep. Yeah. That's the one. Nice. What's your um? Yeah. What's some what's some top leadership points that you've got for the listeners, mate? If they're trying to develop themselves, you know, in 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 an elite sport leadership, what do you think? Uh, Honesty and accountability. Self-aware. We've gone through. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yep. I, I think self awareness. Like again, we're talking about the ability to adapt and connect. Well, you've got to know what your strengths and your weaknesses are. Um, I talk a lot, like, you know, we do a lot of talking about strength and weaknesses, and I suppose you guys probably do too, um, with, with uh, professional sports, you know, as individuals and as teams. And generally, especially, there's, you know, a couple of areas that you can identify your strength and your weaknesses. So it might be as a person in general, as a leader. Mm. It might be, let's say you're in the corporate world, what industry you're in. Um, you know, say you're in agriculture or um, construction or real estate, insurance, mm. um, finance, and then whatever your role is too, mm. you know, whether it be um, your CFO, your chief financial officer, your CIO, um, mm. chief innovation officer, just understanding those. So they're just really identifying your strengths and your weaknesses. You, can, you can't improve until you identify your weaknesses. Mm. Like, and I get, people get a bit frustrated with, so I, I harp on that. But again, it's come from the high performance in, environment. Like if you want to be the best or you want to get significantly better, you have to go and identify and be brutally honest with what are those areas that you need to work on and go and fucking work on them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, constantly striving mm. for that feedback, mm. which I was always trying to do because I was pretty ordinary rugby players. I was always... Like, you know, how can I get better as a, I suppose, as a, a, an actual player? Because mm. you sort of know what you can get better at in terms of physical athletic capability. Mm. It's quite quite obvious. Go mm. and do these weights and whatnot. But um, your ability to understand and read the game and different aspects of that is an area that I was always constantly trying to work on and improve. Yeah. Awesome. And what do you... What are you doing at the moment with the business coaching, Bo? What are you? What are you sort of? Where can people find you, or what? What sort of stuff are you working on? Yeah, on LinkedIn, mates. So Again, the corporate stuff, doing the coaching, consulting, whatever you want to call it, which I really enjoy. Um, probably not doing a great deal, not as much of the focus or emphasis on the sort of the SMEs, the smaller, medium enterprises, more on the bigger stuff which I really enjoy because those guys, um, they understand. It was really interesting you're talking to small business owners and talking about coaching and improving and whatnot. And they're like, oh, I don't really need it. I've been doing business for 10, 15 years. You're like, yes, sweet, awesome. Um, and, you know, Dan Carter, uh, Roger Federer, Tiger Woods, they don't ever, they've got that humility where they don't go, Oh yeah, I'm probably good enough. This will do. Like mm. they're always trying to improve, mm. and I think small business owners don't understand that. Mm. Whereas when you get to the corporate world, they understand that they, you know, that it's so competitive, and they're drilling down. They're generally accountable to someone else, whether it be shareholders mm. or, um, you know, the Boss. other bosses or mm. leaders above them, that they know they've got to constantly be improving because competition is so fierce. Yeah, and it might be. You know, 20 to 50 builders in Dubai, well, you can sort of get ahead there. You, it's not hard to be above average. Whereas when we start going into the corporate world, like we're talking generally the top 10 in an industry, like it's cutthroat when they get mm, there. Mm, mm, it's true. And it's so much more accountability. Mm, awesome. Hey, Bo, awesome talking to you, man. I love loved having a chat about all things rugby, leadership. Brilliant. Thanks, Bram. It was great to get on here, mate. I uh, look forward to hopefully having you on my podcast too and get a bit more of your perspective on the leadership, but I thoroughly enjoyed that. What's your podcast called? Uh, Leaders, Not Captains. Oh, nice. Yeah, leadership and high-performance teams. Again, just digging down and 
asking people that have been involved. So um, those that have been in the special forces or um, the elite police teams mm. um, or elite sporting teams, asking them specifically around the leadership, again, the role that they had. Mm. Um, so when we're talking about the high-performance sporting teams like that, have to have won a title. Because yeah. it's really interesting to hear what why they won in that year or particular years as opposed to the other years. Yeah, right. What was it? What was it? Oh, significant. There'd be significant um, you know, reasons generally mm. why it dropped off. So you guys, are, it can be a bit harder to tell whether, like you, obviously you've got your missions that you've got to go and complete, mm. but it's not you're not always ranked sort of thing. It might be just a winner or loss, or that was successful, that was unsuccessful, whereas, you know, you're ranked in the sporting You're mm. one, two, three, down at three to 15. Mm. So, yeah. That is interesting. Cool, yeah. man. Yeah. Awesome. All right. We'll do it again All soon. All right. Rum. Sounds good. Great. Thanks, Bo. See you, man. Right. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.